Good morning. How are we doing? Ready to go? Let's get after it. Genesis. We'll be marching through here, so grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis. How many of you guys are familiar with the story in Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, fun story about crazy sexual perversion and God's wrath and burning up a couple cities with fire and sulfur. Right? Good one. Good children's story. Nighttime. Well, that's what you came to today. So we're going there. That's where we're at. Uh, and in this, uh, we're going to look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to look at this story in a way that hopefully uh, enhances our worship, uh, even our gratitude and our joy. And you're like, are we talking about the same story? Yes, but I want to look at it from an angle that I think uh, is going to be good for your joy and your worship. And that's what we want as a church to be people who are so joyful for, for what the gospel is to us. Uh, that we express it in not just song, but in our lives. So we're going to go there. That's what we're happening. And one thing that's been really clear thus far in Genesis is God has got standards, uh, and he's going to judge. God has standards, and he's going to judge. We saw that in the Garden of Eden, like disobedience, Adam and Eve get kicked out. And then we see this with Cain and Abel, like the first uh, siblings, and there's murder, and he, he... Uh, deals with Cain. We see this in the flood of the whole earth. We see this in the Tower of Babel, where it's like your, your pride is rising and he scrambles the language and sends people off. So it's clear that God has got standards and he's going to judge. And we're not that far into Genesis. And I don't know about you, but I'm already a bit exhausted by people's failure. And anybody else, it's like, come on. Like, really? Like, we're just... Over and over again, it's just mess up after mess up, and it's just making a mess of everything, and people's sin and rebellion and pride, and everything's just kind of spreading rampantly, and you're just frustrated. Like your parents were literally in the Garden of Eden. Let's try not to kill each other. Can't even get that, right? There's just so much dysfunction happening, and you can be frustrated with, with the, the amount of sin or the exhaustion of failure over and over and over again. And maybe that's how you feel with yourself. Why can't I get this right? Why do I keep struggling with this sin? Why do I keep tripping over the same thing? Why don't I'm still dealing with this? It can be frustrating. You wonder, what hope is there for people who can't seem to get it right and a God that demands that we do? What hope is there for people who can't seem to get it right and a God that demands that we do? Because on one hand, if God is a God of justice or if God is not a God of justice, there's no hope for this world. Like, just we'll run rampant in our own sin and depravity, making a mess of things and each other. Like, if God is not a God of justice, there's no hope for us. Like, we're just left to our own sin. He's like, well, best of luck. You know, figure it out. We're going to make a mess of it. But on the other hand, if God is a God of justice, then what hope is there for you and me as sinners who have to answer for our sin? And yet we get this promise back in Genesis 3 when everything started to go awry that God is saying, no, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to deal with this. Through a descendant of Eve, we're going to right this wrong. You're like, okay, well, how exactly is that going to work? Because Cain was a descendant of Eve, and that didn't go well. Right, and then you get to the, you flooded the earth. Like every, like, how is this exactly going to work? How is the descendant of Eve going to going to fix this? Going to right this wrong? And I think today we get a little peek uh, at a window uh, in how this actually comes and plays out. So Genesis chapter eighteen, I want to give you some context because we're just going to focus on uh, a dialogue that happens between God and Abraham. But let me catch you up and give you some context. To everything that's happening around it. So last week we got introduced to a very important character of Abram. 
And Abram is an important character because God chose Abram to say, I'm going to continue to work out my plan of redemption and salvation through you. You follow me, and I'm going to do something with you and your family. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he's like, well, that's great, but we don't have any kids, and we're not getting any younger. Uh, so he believes them. They set out. However, time goes by, and they still don't have any kids, and they're just getting older. So they decide to try to take matters into their own hands. Believe God, but I think God needs a little assistance in carrying out this promise. So, so they called an, called an audible, and Abraham or Abram slept with his servant Hagar, and they had a son, Ishmael. Now, we still have world conflict because of that mistake. Um, but this is what happened, and God revisits Abram after this to reaffirm the promise. no. I told you that you're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah. It's going to happen. I'm going to make you a great nation. It hasn't happened yet, but be patient. It's part of my plan. It's going to happen. And then they make a covenant or reaffirm a covenant. He gives them a sign of a covenant, circumcision. And you're kind of like, oh, Noah got a rainbow. Like Maybe I can get something better than that. But <laughs> the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And he changes his name from Abram to Abraham to reaffirm you're going to be a father of nations. Like, I'm doing something big with you. You're going to father nations. It's going to happen. Uh, And he leaves after he reaffirms this promise that you're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah, and you're going to name that son Isaac. Now, time goes by. They're still not getting any younger. And one day, Abraham is sitting outside his tent. And under a tree... Off in the distance, he sees three people, and he's visited with the Lord enough that he recognizes this is the Lord, and the Lord has with him two men who are angels. And they're kind of on this business trip, they're doing something else, and they're, they're seeing, they come to visit Abraham. And Abraham runs, being the hospitable uh, person that he is, and is like, stay with me for a while. Let me take care of you. Let me feed you. Let's have a meal. So like, yeah, let's do that. Let's have a meal. Uh, so they sit down, and they're outside the tent, and the Lord says to Abraham, where's Sarah? And he's like, well, she's in the tent. And he says, this time next year, I'm going to come visit you again, and you will have a son. And then Sarah laughs behind the tent. And the Lord says, why did you laugh? Why are you laughing? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. He's like, no, you laughed. <laughs> so that happened. You can read it. It's in there. The little dialogue where Sarah's like doubting, and the Lord's saying, no, you laughed at this. So there's some like, she's 90 at this time. So it's like, okay, that's a little laughable. Um, but it happened. They're going to have a son. We're not there yet, but this is what happens. Well, after they have this time, uh, Abraham and, and the Lord and the two angels, they go off, and they're going to investigate the sin that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> and Abraham and the Lord kind of hold back and have a conversation that we're going to look at. But the two angels go on into Sodom. And they're going to they're check out the city and see the corruption, and they're just going to spend the night in the town square. But Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, sees them and is like, no. It's not safe. Stay with us. Like, no, no, we don't want to impose. No, I insist. Stay with us. So they come to stay with Lot. And the men of Sodom, from old to young, every last one of them is what the scripture says, come to Lot's house that night and pound on the door and says, we know two visitors are here. Let them out so we can have our way with them sexually. They want to rape these two angels. That's what's going on. And Lot is like, no. Please don't. Like, they are my guest. Don't act this way. And then he says, how about take my daughters instead? And you're like, that's disturbing. 
like, what's going on there? Now, it could mean kind of like saying, hey, I would, as soon as you have violate my own family as my guest. Like, not intend, like he wouldn't send his daughters out there. It could just been like, no, 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 why don't you, you know, uh, it's like, by no means, he's doing that. Or it could be like, uh, if a collector comes to take your car because you're not making your payments, and they're like, well, why don't you take my kids too? Like, you don't really mean it. Like, maybe you do. I don't know your kids do. Like, <clears throat> but you're like, no, certainly you wouldn't want that. It's kind of hyperbole. It could mean that. Or he could literally mean, no, here's my daughter. It's like trying to, which is, which is crazy messed up. So he's kind of to plead with this uh, mob. And they're pounding on the door, kind of pressing him back into his house. The angels somehow strike everybody blind, uh, pull Lot in, and being like, yeah, investigation is done. We're definitely going to destroy this place. You need to go, and if you've got any family members, like, you need to warn them that it's going to happen, and you need to get out of Dodge. <coughs> so he's got two son-in-laws. <coughs> Excuse me. They're not married to his daughters yet. And the story kind of plays out where you ask the question, were they in the crowd pounding on the door? Because it says young and old, every last one of them. So I got questions there. But he goes to warn his son-in-laws who are engaged to be married to his daughter. So it's not yet. He's like, hey, and, and maybe you could hear this through their ears. I got two angels living with me right now. They're here from the Lord and they're about to destroy the city. We all need to leave right away. How do you think they might have taken that? They laughed at him. They thought he was joking. Like, yeah, Lot, relax, buddy. Like, it's not. They don't listen to him. So he goes back, and they're like, no, you need to get out now. You need to take your family, and you need to leave. So Lot and his wife and his two daughters flee because the judgment of God is coming. And they said, don't, don't you look back. Don't you do You just go, right? And you guys know the story that as they're traveling, Lot's wife looked back. And what happened? Turned into a pillar of salt. And you hear that, and you'd be like, that's kind of harsh, right? He's looking back. Now, maybe it was just a glance back out of curiosity, but you were told not to. You did it. Disobedience has consequences. More likely, the term looking back, if you look at how Jesus refers to this scenario in Luke 17, looking back means turning back. And it probably happened of like, no lot, this is crazy, that's my home, we don't need to leave, let's you know, just board up, and, we'll, and she turns to go back. And that's when it happens. And when that happens, Lot and the daughters are like, just keep walking. Like, we're going, right? Like, this is happening. But now, get this. It's just Lot. He's a single dad. And he's got two daughters who just both lost their fiance and their mom. And they have a very glim outlook of their future. And they think they have no, like, what's, what's next for us? So his two daughters come up with this plan. Let's get our dad drunk and we'll sleep with him so that we can have children. And you take one night and I'll take the next night. And they do that. And that's what happens. And you read the book of Genesis and you start to feel a little bit better about your family. Right? There's <laughs> all kinds of messed up happening. Like there's just sin and corruption um, and perversion everywhere. But what we want to look at or what we want to focus on this morning is this conversation that Abraham has with God in chapter 18. And I'm telling you, if you can understand what's being said in this dialogue between God and Abraham, you will better understand God's plan for salvation. And if you better understand God's plan for salvation, you will better understand Jesus. And if you better understand Jesus 
you will be a better worshiper of Jesus. And if you are a better worshiper of Jesus, it makes all the difference in your life, in every area of your life. So that's where we're going. I really want you to lean in because this dialogue kind of pulls the curtain back and gives us a peek at what God has in store to save this wicked world. Because you get this vague promise in Genesis, oh, there's going to be a descendant. All right, well, how does that exactly work? (laughs) How is this going to play out? How are you going to save this wicked world? And I think in Genesis 18, we we get a look at that. So Genesis 18, uh, turn there. And let me just say, like, we'll put some passages on the screen. We're going to go to some other places. But just as one of your pastors, I don't want us putting verses on the screen to deter you from bringing your Bibles. So we would really encourage you, bring your Bibles, open them up, have them in your lap or turn on your phone, but, but see it with us. You're going to benefit more um, when you work and you see it with us uh, in the Scripture. So Genesis 18, you guys ready? All right, I'm going to start in verse 16. <clears throat> then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them. To set them on their way. So they just got done having the meal. Uh, Sarah just laughed. It kind of got rebuked there. No, it's going to happen. So now they're moving on. Because that's why they came. We came to investigate what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, hey, I know Abraham. Let's have dinner there first. And now they're moving on. And Abraham's kind of seeing them out. Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. All right, so Abraham's kind of seeing these people out on their way, and the Lord says, should I tell Abraham what I'm up to? We're going to go and destroy Sodom. <clears throat> Should I let him in on that? Should I tell him what, it, what he's going to do? Like, now, why would he tell him that? And the way the text continues to unfold, it explains why he would tell him that. Because he's going to be a teacher of righteousness and justice to future generations, and this is a powerful teaching tool. In fact, Peter says that. This is Second Peter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He commended them to extinction, making them an, what? an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So see, he's saying, this is a great example. Abraham, if you're going to become a, a teacher to future generations of your people of righteousness and justice, like you need to better understand my holiness, my standards, how I deal with sin so that you can pass it on. I'm going to let you in on this because you're a leader of my people. But also, Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the nations. Of the earth, all these sinful, pagan, sexually perverse nations. And in this dialogue and in this scenario, he gives Abraham a clue on how that's going to happen. Let's look at it. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I'm just going to stop there before we get into the dialogue. That outcry has come to God. Just like, if you guys remember, Abel's blood cried out to God. Injustice has an audience. It's, It's God. It has a divine audience. Nobody gets away with anything. They may for a while, 
But if there's no injustice that God is unaware of, then he will deal with and he will look into. And injustice has a divine audience, and he's going to go and look into this. Now, often people think that the sin of Sodom was just sexual. And I can understand how you can think that. That was a major part of their sin, this sexual perversion. They wanted to rape a couple angels and had a mob to do that. That's kind of messed up. But their sin goes deeper than that. In fact, Ezekiel references this. This is in Ezekiel 16. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. doesn't say anything about sexual uh, perversion. Now, in the next verse, it does. It does address that. If you open up to Ezekiel 16, you go to verse 50. But here he's saying it's a lot deeper than just sexual perversion. They have pride and excess of food and prosperous ease, all of that stuff, but did not aid the poor and the needy. And the word for outcry is often used in Scripture for people of oppression, that they outcry to the Lord. saying They're, they're oppressors. They have oppression here. Now, they have tons of pride. They have excess of food. They have prosperous ease, but they don't help anybody else. They're just living the prosperous life. They're just living it up. In their own prosperity. And it led to this kind of perversion of, of autonomy, moral autonomy. I can do what I want. I can go where I want. I can sleep with who I want. I can talk how I want. Like, I can answer myself. Like, I'm my own king type of uh, thinking you get with this level of prosperity. Now, when you look at that description of pride, excess of food, I don't like that one, um, and prosperous ease, you might think, does this sound kind of familiar? I mean, are we living in that city? When you have such prosperity that you get to this moral autonomy that eventually leads to sexual perversion, and it's like you can make your own mind up, you can make your own, you can do whatever you want. Does that sound familiar? Because cultures can become wicked. Like there's a depravity and a perversion that can spread with sinful people just kind of in every inch of culture. And you look at Sodom, it's like this is a messed up culture. And you look at America, like this is a messed up culture. I mean, we have grown men that dress like female hookers to go to libraries to read books to kids at Drag Queen Story Hour. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, as a Christian, you ever live in this and just kind of like flinch? <laughs> like when you read this story and judgment coming, like cultures can be messed up. And we look at this like this story is meant to disturb us. Like you should read this and be like, that's messed up. And perhaps when you live in our world, you go home sometimes you're like, that's messed up. Like cultures can be corrupt. And this is a wicked culture. And God rains fire down on it. And can we just recognize the reality of God's judgment? That when it comes to sin, he ain't playing. And it will get dealt with. And he is a God of vengeance and wrath. And it ain't funny. And until that day happened, what was life like in Sodom? It was awesome. They had excess of food and prosperous ease, and they were proud of it, and they could live how they want. 
In fact, Jesus referenced this in, in Luke 17. He says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, living it up, enjoying life. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Then you get this scary ending. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He's saying this account that you see here in Sodom, that's not the only time this is going to happen. That there's going to be a time where people are just living their life, doing their thing, living it up, and then it's done. Like time is up. And judgment is here. Now, let's get this, guys. God is just in punishing our sin. Make it more personal. God is just in punishing your sin. Your insecurities, your lying, your self-centeredness, your sexual perversion, your greed. God is just in punishing your sin. But there is this amazing conversation between God and Abraham before this goes down that gives us a peek into how wicked people could be saved. Look at, look at this, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So the two angels, they go on, but Abraham and God stand ba- stay back. And Abraham asks him a question. He, he just found out what, what's going to happen. And he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he, he furthers his question. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Isn't that kind of the issue? Isn't that the thing we wrestle with sometimes? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Because sometimes from our vantage point, we're like, well, that's happening, and that's not just, and that's happening, and that's not just, and this isn't right, and you're letting that happen. Like, God, aren't you going to exercise justice? And, And Abraham's actually affirming God as a God. Like, surely you wouldn't do this. You're telling me you're just going to go wipe out this whole city? Like, the righteous with the wicked, like all of them? Like, is that what you're going to, is this your plan? You're just going to wipe everybody out because of some wickedness? And further, he's like, well, what, if there's, what if there's some righteous people in there? And we wrestle, like, is God going to exercise justice? Will he do what is right? Now, Abraham is acknowledging God's justice. He's like, I know you're a God of justice. But he's also asking for mercy. Notice he's not asking God to spare the righteous and destroy the wicked. That's just kind of in the category of justice. What he's asking is if God would spare the wicked because of the righteous. You get that? That's, a very, that's very different. He's not saying, hey, so at least save the righteous. You can go ahead and destroy the wicked, but at least save the righteous, right? That's not what he's asking. He's saying, if there's some righteous, would you, for their sake, spare the rest of the wicked? Look at verse 24 and see it again. He says, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? It is the city, the whole city, for for the sake of, or for the 50 righteous who are in it? That's what he's asking. He's asking for mercy. 
And I just want to point out here, Abraham is praying for Sodom. I mean, that's what's happening. It's just a conversation between him and God. But this is, it's prayer. It's intercession. And he's praying on behalf of Sodom. If you go a few chapters back, you'll see that Abraham once rescued the king of Sodom um, with, with his nephew Lot. He, he's, he's got some, some interest here. And he prays for mercy upon this wicked city. Do you pray like that? Like for wicked people? Like when you look out, or are you just more like the disciples when, when they were asking Jesus, should we just call fire down on this city after they kind of rejected? He's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. Not yet. Or do you have a sense of compassion? When you look out at, at wicked people, is it, well, you're going to get yours, or he's like, have mercy. Have mercy on these people. I mean, do you care? Because understanding the reality of God's judgment helps with your compassion to others. For, for Abraham here, this isn't just a theory or a someday thing. They're standing on a hill, and God's like, that city over there? Yeah, I'm going to destroy it. And Abraham's like, I know people in that city. I rescued the king of that city. I have relatives in that city. And judgment and wrath is a real, like, tangible thing for Abraham in this moment. And it brings about compassion. Now, Abraham knows God is a God of justice. And he also knows firsthand that God is a God of grace and mercy. Because it says that God chose Abraham. Now, maybe when God first chose Abraham, he had some pride. Maybe. We don't know that. But maybe he's like, you chose me. That makes sense, right? I, yeah, I think that was a wise choice, God. But at this point in his ministry, at this point in his life, that's not the case. He has lied about his wife being his sister. He has slept with his servant, not trusting in the plans of God. And yet, God's still at his house having dinner. So he knows firsthand, I know you haven't treated me the way I deserve. I know that you've treated me better than, than, than what I deserve. So I know that you're a God of grace, and I know that you're a God of mercy, but I also know that you're a God of justice. And, and he's, he's bringing up both of these points of tension in this situation. He says this theological conundrum, and he's getting to talk it out directly with God. Okay, I know you're a God of justice. I also know you're a God of mercy. How do those two things work together? Like, when do you show justice? When do you show mercy? How do you decide? When, what is it? Like, you showed mercy to me, but you're not going to show it to them. You're going to show justice to them, but you didn't show it to me. Like, how do those things work together? And then to add another factor into this theological equation, I know that you love righteousness. So how does that all work together? You're a God of justice, you love righteousness, but you're also a God of mercy. What do you love more? Do you love righteousness more? Do you love justice more? Do you love mercy more? Which one are you going to show? Like, how do you decide? And he's trying to kind of figure this out uh, in the situation. And in this case, you got wickedness, and it demands justice. But you're also a God of mercy who loves righteousness. So Abraham's question is, if there were some righteousness in the city, would that lead you to have mercy instead of justice? Because I know you love righteousness. If there was some righteousness in there, would that make you overlook the wickedness and give mercy instead of justice? And here's God's answer, verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. He said, yes. <laughs> he said, yes. He's like, yeah, if I find 50 people, I'll spare the whole wicked city. Why? For their sake, for the sake of those 50 righteous people. Well, now there's deeper stuff going on here that I want to get to. But on one level, we get introduced to this idea that a righteous minority can make a difference in a wicked majority. And wouldn't that be comforting if you're the Israelites about ready to go into the promised land and you are way outnumbered? And you're not just to conquer them. You're to be a blessing to all these nations and to think, okay, God can do something with a righteous minority despite this wicked majority that's around us. And should that be meaningful to us in our world, in our context? That a righteous minority can make a difference on a wicked majority? It's like when Jesus tells his followers, you're the salt of the earth. Now, when you put salt on something, if you put salt on your steak or you put salt on popcorn, uh, you don't really see the salt, right? Uh, The food still outnumbers the salt. It should. If you put more salt than you have food, call a doctor or something. (laughs) You got issues. But we put salt on our food, but the food always outnumbers the salt. But the salt makes a difference, right? You ever have some food and you're like, this could use some salt, right? Like you notice, and when you put it on, it's like, oh, that enhanced the flavor. That made it better. A little bit of salt makes a difference. Now, you may feel like there's only three Christians in my whole office. You know, at work, I only, there's only a select few of us that follow Jesus. I go to school, and it feels like I'm the only Christian on my dorm floor. Like you may feel in those situations like this. this is, there's just a little bit of us. There's only a few of us. But I'm telling you, it matters. It makes a difference. God can do something with a few righteous people in a wicked context. If you're salty. I mean, if you really are righteous for Jesus Christ, sold out and committed to him. Because Jesus goes on to say, well, if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Just throw it out. As in, if you're saying, there's only a few Christians in my office. But nobody would really know that you're a Christian. And you don't act any different, talk any different, behave any different. Then don't expect God to do something in your context. But what this is telling us is God's attitude is, oh, but if you give me a few, I can work with that. Just give me a few and and I'll do something with that. But there's something deeper going on here because this really isn't about reforming Sodom. This isn't like, well, if I had 50 people and we gave them 10 years, I really think they could bring reform and change. That's not what this is about. That may be true in principle, but that's not the point. This is about sparing Sodom, not reforming it. He's saying, would you give the whole wicked city of Sodom mercy instead of justice because of some righteousness? I know you're a God of justice, But do you love righteousness so much that if there was some righteousness in the city, you would spare the whole city for their sake? And God says, yeah, yeah, I would. He affirms the idea that wicked people can be spared because of righteous people. Well, then here's the question. How much righteousness does it take to save a sinner? I mean, well, thanks to Abraham, we got some numbers. (laughs) It's quantifiable. Fifty. And this plays out like a theological math story problem. you got one city that's going to hell at 100 miles an hour. 
how many righteous people will it take to stop that, right? And everyone's like, 50? <laughs> He's like, yeah, 50 would do it. And as soon as he gets that answer, he just keeps pressing. He just keeps pressing. Let, let, let's look at this. Verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45. So he said, all right, 50, that's great. Let me just ask one question. I'm just dusting out. Like, I don't want to, like, overstep. But God, what, what if five out of those 50, like, righteous was kind of generous, right? I mean, it's like righteous light, not too good. It's just really about 45 of them. How about then? And he's like, yeah, for 45, I would. And then, then he just keeps pressing again. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. He said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went away. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And we're like, well, why did he stop? We never really find the threshold. What about nine? What about seven? How about four? Would four do it? What about one? What about one? If one truly righteous person, would you spare whole wicked city we don't know the answer and why did Abraham stop asking it's kind of this awkward ending and God told him that he was going to destroy Sodom but he also told Abraham how willing he would be to spare it if he found for the sake of righteous people but by telling Abraham that he was going to destroy the city, every time he told Abraham that he would spare it for 50, for 40, for 30, for 20, for 10, what he's also saying is, but there's not. Yeah, but there's not 20 righteous people. Yeah, I would, but, but there's not 10 righteous people. There's not, Abraham. And the conversation just kind of comes to this depressing end because Abraham knows we don't got anybody that righteous. church what if we did what if we did what if there was one person we could all point to and be like we're with him i know we're wicked and we deserve wrath but we're with him and for his sake would you show us mercy what if there was one because this conversation really shed some light on verse 18 look back at verse 18 seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. How? How exactly are all the nations of the earth, all the wicked, perverse, depraved nations going to be blessed in Abraham? Because through Abraham will come the promised descendant of Eve, someone who's righteous enough to save the wicked. Right now that person doesn't exist. Or is not present. But we know him. What's his name, church? Church, what's his name? 
Let me read. This is Romans 5. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And for the free gift is not like the result of that of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through that, not 50, not 45, not 40, not 30, not 20, not 10, one, one man, Jesus Christ. And this is in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is that seed coming through Abraham. Through you, Abraham, is coming that one righteous person. We are saved by his righteousness. Not your own. You, You get that? Like, do you get that? Like in here, like you're saved by his righteousness. So when it comes to your salvation, it's not about how sinful you are. It's about how righteous Jesus is. And Jesus is righteous enough to save the wicked. And not just a wicked city, a wicked world. That's how righteous he is. Jesus is righteous enough to save the wicked. Let's personalize it. Jesus is righteous enough to save you. And it's important to know that in light of how wicked Sodom was. Church, we are meant to be disgusted by this story. They wanted to gang rape two angels. That's their culture. And God was ready to show mercy to that whole city. If you show me just ten, give me ten, and yeah, and I'll, I'll gladly show mercy. How amazing is God's grace? You think of that in view of your own sin. Because I'm sure all of us have those issues like, ah, oh, again. How could God ever love somebody like me? I bet he's tired of me now. I bet he's done with me now. But it's not about how sinful you are. It's about how righteous Jesus is. About how righteous Jesus is. And for his sake, God would save you. He's God's beloved son. He's righteous. And for his sake, he'd save you. Not for your sake, not for your performance, but for his sake, he would save you. And when you look at this wicked world we live in, you're like, well, who, who's righteous enough to save us? Nobody. There's nobody here until Jesus came. God put on flesh, and you're like, I'll be a resident of that wicked world, and I'll represent you. And for my sake, God will show you mercy. You are saved through your righteous representative, Jesus Christ. Now, we just had elections, and I don't know what you think of all the outcome or whatever, but we elected representatives. So you get the concept. I want you to go represent us in making these laws and policies. Jesus is your righteous representative, your representative that you need, the representative that ultimately matters. This is how it's said in Hebrews chapter 7. But he holds his priesthood, which is kind of a religious way to say representative, permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, his resurrection, he's still alive to do what? Make intercessions for them. So in our sin, Jesus is still alive to see like, oh, but for my sake, he's with me. She's with me. For my sake, Father, give him mercy instead of justice. Okay, for your sake, I will. 
He lives to do that. Now, Abraham was like a priest to Sodom or for Sodom. He interceded on their behalf. He pleaded with God, but he couldn't pull it off. Jesus is our great high priest who can pull it off. He can save to the uttermost because he lives to make intercession for us. Abraham prayed for people that would have killed him. The violent depravity in Sodom, if he goes in, they would have killed Abraham. And he's praying for him. And Jesus prayed for people who did kill him. On the cross, he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Abraham risked his life representing Sodom. Oh, please don't be angry, Lord. If I could just ask one more question, just, please, please don't be angry at me. But Jesus gave his life representing us. He took on the anger and wrath of God. Which means in the end, God didn't sacrifice justice or mercy. He didn't have to decide between justice and mercy. Both show up on the cross. Because sin was punished. Your sin was punished. It just wasn't you being punished. It was the righteous Jesus. So the flip of Sodom happened in the gospel. It's not that the righteous got uh, judged along with the wicked. No, no, no. The wicked got saved along with the righteous and mercy. We celebrate that every week in communion. Christ's body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And your salvation, your not getting the wrath of God, is all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. So church, if that's true, you believe that? How treasured should Jesus be to us? Like how precious should Jesus be? And our application as a church is that we should live lives that honor God. Oh, everything we do, every, how we treat people, how we act, how we handle money, how we handle like everything is just be like, God, I want to honor you. I want, I want to thank you. Like you're my savior. But our application right in this moment is to praise God, to exalt and worship him, to say thank you, to lift up our voices and just saying, I just love you. I love you so much because you first loved me. And if we could be known for anything as a church, I hope people would look at the people of Veritas Church and be like, those people love Jesus. Because everything else would flow out of that. I just hope those people love Jesus. And that comes from understanding Jesus and really understanding the gospel. You deserve the wrath of God. You do. But because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, you get the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as a people, every decision we make, every action we take, our whole lives would just be a great big thank you to you. It would just be worship, constant worship. And I just pray in the next 20 minutes, what goes on in this room would just be a great big thank you to you. You would be pleased by the worship of your people. You'd be honored by a group of us just saying, we're so in love with you. We're so thankful for you. You are so precious to us. 
because we realize we're saved by your righteousness, not our own. And we're filled with gratitude because of it. We pray this in your name. Amen.